Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Rap Report. I'm your host, Andrew Rappaport, the executive director of Striving for Eternity and the Christian podcast community, of which this podcast is a proud member. On this episode of the Rap Report, we are going to be discussing a topic known as dispensationalism. We're going to discuss what dispensationalism theology is and is not. And I know some of you already are going, wait, I don't want to hear about that. Well, let me encourage you. Next week, I will have Pat Ebendroth on discussing his new book on covenant theology. So this was me on another podcast. Well, sorry, he calls it a podcast, but it's actually a YouTube channel. And therefore, technically, it's not a podcast. But that aside, uh, it was a joy to be on here with Adam. I met Adam through Twitter. We talked, and he is a covenant theologian, wanted to have me on his show to discuss, well, dispensationalism. And so he titled this, uh, Three Things You Need to Know About Dispensationalism with Andrew Rappaport. Now, his channel is Curious Christianity, so I encourage you to check that out. You can watch the video of it. But this, I hope, will be helpful for explaining at least what I think is much confusion within the theological circles on what dispensationalism is and is not. We're going to balance it out next week with a look at what covenant theology is with someone who's literally written a book on it. So check that out next week as well. So I hope you look forward to this episode of The Rap Report. Welcome to The Rap Report with your host, Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretation and application. This is a ministry of striving for eternity and the Christian podcast community. For more content or to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Dispensationalism, covenant theology, what does it mean at all? Uh, today, I have a very special guest, Andrew Rappaport. And he is here to help explain and, I don't know, hopefully bring some clarity to what dispensationalism is and why we should believe in it. So myself, I have not converted yet. So Andrew, welcome to the channel and um, good luck. Maybe you can convert me to dispensationalism. Uh, no, that's not the goal. It, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> the, the, the reality is, is that uh, we'll all agree 100% about 10,000 years from now, for sure, even a thousand <laughs> years from now. So mo most of these issues that we debate over are not as big of issues as people make, but I, I do appreciate you having me on. Mm -hmm. I thank you for, for having the discussion with me. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm really excited. And you know what, honestly, I'm, I'm also just excited to hear you say exactly what you just did. Um, you know, this channel actually is based on curiosity and the willingness to have conversation with people that we disagree and to be able to really explore. So I really hope that this will be a great exploration for those that haven't heard of it. And I will just say, like, I haven't spent nearly as much time talking about this subject. So I am interested. I'm interested in hearing what you, what it is you have to say. So, so if you could help us, Andrew, what is dispensationalism? It's for most so of us, it's just start. a big word that theologians argue about. And the rest of the average person does not know why it matters at all. Yeah. Well, let's start with what it is not. Okay. Tell it's, me what it is not. It's it is not an end time system. Most people, when they hear dispensationalism, if I, if I say I'm a dispensationalist, the first thing they say is, "Well, I'm I'm a millennial, or I'm post millennial, or I'm not pre millennial." Yeah, I, I heard I of go, somebody who did that recently. <clears throat> Maybe me. <laughs> <laughs> can't can't imagine who that might be. <laughs> but but that is that's the common response people give, which reveals that 
people don't understand what dispensationalism actually is. The the end times view is not a requirement for dispensationalism. It's a byproduct of it. So what is it? It's a hermeneutic. Okay, That's really what it comes down to. Okay. And for those who may not know that term, hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. So how do we interpret? Every one of you listening is practicing hermeneutics right now. You're you're listening to my words, you're listening to Adam's words, and you are interpreting them. But most people don't even think about the rules they apply to interpretation. And we recognize those rules most often when someone takes us out of context and suddenly we get, hey, 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 no, that's wrong. You, you, you don't put the right context there. You took me out of con context. Most people recognize that one when done to them not when they do it to others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's something we all do, but we don't think about the rules of it. And so when we think about the two big terminologies would be covenant theology and dispensational theology, mm -hmm. they are primarily the differences is in how we interpret the scripture. Tim? And let me just give, a, if I could, a quick history lesson, just because when we say covenant theology, I... It, there is a different view of the way words are used today and the way it's used historically. And so let me give you a quick history lesson so that we understand it. Mm -hmm. And that way, if I use terms, people understand what I mean by the terms, or at least how I'm going to use some terms together. Uh, covenant theology is a way of interpreting that was born out of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, stop. I'm not saying that every covenant theologian is Roman Catholic or that covenant theology is heresy because it's Roman Catholicism. I'm not saying that. Because I was about to say, man, okay. you're about to really anger everybody <laughs> going deep on this one. <laughs> yeah, but we, we have to understand because most people historically that say they're, they believe in covenant theology believe in Reformed theology, not covenant theology. And okay. so... What you have is the Catholic Church that that started to kind of replace themselves with Israel, kind of take on the view of priesthood and things to give themselves themselves credibility by saying, oh, see, we're like Israel. You had some of that. You had some of the interpretation. But then you also have where they weave in tradition. And you know, over time, they start weaving in a whole lot of things to the point that right now the Catholic Church is the authority over the Bible. Mm -hmm. because it's the Catholic Church that has to interpret the Bible. That, by definition, makes them a, a a higher authority if they're the only ones that can interpret. But the Reformers came along and said, okay, look, there's a lot of good that we have in this hermeneutic, but there's a lot of bad that comes with it from the Catholic Church. So what they did was create what we would know as historically Reformed theology, which many would argue that uh, Baptists— couldn't be reformed because part of the reformed theology often has the view of covenants of, of viewing cup covet the the uh confessional statements things like that that's a separate discussion so if i so what we call covenant theology today is historically was refer, referred to as reformed theology so if i use the terms covenant theology or reformed theology I'm using them interchangeably because of the fact that we have this historical view, we have this more modern view. The the word reformed theology or reformed has has morphed as well historically, because as I just told you what it is historically, people today think, oh well, if you're if you believe in the let's say the doctrines of grace mm -hmm. is the, is probably the better term, but what is referred to as Calvinism. If you believe in Calvinism, you're reformed. Well. Reformed theology is much more than just the soteriology, which that big word just means the study of salvation. It's much more than just how we get saved. Reformed theology is far more robust than that. But in today's day and age, people just mean it to refer to that. So, hey man, the rest of us got to think in sound bites, okay? <laughs> we can't correct. we can't all be up in the clouds all the time. If it doesn't fit on a meme for yeah. social media, it just isn't theology, right? That's that, that's, that's right. The that's modern right. way. <laughs> that's how you so, get your so theology. I, yeah, so I'm going to use reformed theology, covenant theology interchangeably to refer to the those rules of interpretation, the hermeneutic used by those in more of a covenantal camp rather than a dispensational camp. And we'll explain those differences, I'm sure, as the show goes on. But 
if I refer to Calvinism or doctrines of grace, then I'm being more specific to the doctrine of soteriology. Okay. Yep. So dispensationalism is kind of contrasting covenant theology, and it's more of a way of thinking about and interpreting the Bible than it is like a, just a particular small doctrine. Is that kind of the point? Yeah, it's it, that'd be an excellent explanation of it. It's and and there's three key areas that we would see the difference. Okay. Um, and so I mean, historically, some would say dispensationalism is a new system. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been over a hundred years, so that's not all that new. But <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, now it is quite interesting because a dispensationalist like myself can find find the beliefs even in the early church fathers, but they weren't laid out as clearly, which we shouldn't be surprised at because one of the things with theology is all theology is rooted from heresy. So let me explain that. You have, you know, you you have someone come along and say, well, Jesus wasn't God, Irenaeus. What's the response? Well, we need to look at scripture and, oh, we get the you know, a definition of the Trinity. Well, that doctrine was developed because someone taught heresy. And so over time, we continue to refine and refine our theology. Mm -hmm. So that in itself, we shouldn't be surprised that amillennialists, premillennialists all find their root in Augustine, because Augustine believed in a literal thousand years. So I could argue that. He just thought he was in it, so amillennialists can argue it. Mm -hmm. And so it it offers this view that some of the early church fathers were not as precise as we are. So it makes it really hard to say this is what the early church believed when looking in our day and age. So I can look to some of the early church fathers and, and see them teaching some of the same principles of dispensationalism, but not specifically the way we would today. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. That aside, so that's as, as my buddy Matt Slick says, when it comes to early church fathers, he always says, well, my early church father can beat up your early church father. In other <laughs> words, they're all over the map because they don't have it so precise and defined like we do today. So everybody roots themselves in early church fathers. So so that's to say that just because it seems like a newer system doesn't necessarily make it wrong, especially yeah. for reformed <laughs> folks who should believe that we reformed and keep reforming. Uh, I would say dispensationalism is the keep reforming part. <laughs> many, many reformers would disagree. <laughs> obviously, obviously. So let, let's look at these three. The, the, the one that I already alluded to, and probably the biggest one that we end up having disagreement on, that you and I would, would disagree on, would be this idea of the relationship or the continuity discontinuity of Israel and the church. Okay. Is the church Israel is, you know, is the Israel Old Testament church and is the church New Testament Israel? Um I'm going to hold off on that one because I think that's going to be our bigger discussion. Could be. <laughs> um and so that's one major one, but what that comes out of and when we think about the history of dispensationalism, it really was people that looked at the the reformation, looked at the that it still had remnants of the Roman Catholic Church. And they said, let's take a step back and interpret the Bible in a normal sense. They used to call it a literal sense, but the problem with calling it literal is people assume that that means I have to take every word absolutely literal and ignore things like idioms. Mm -hmm. If if I say I'm so hungry, I can eat a cow. Most people understand that idiom to mean I'm starving, not that I can literally eat a, an entire cow. So you know what? I, I so, think that we're going to have to create a new English word for this because I, in this conversation, like it, it happens so many times where, yeah, someone wants to use normal. I've heard plain reading of the text. I've heard, you know, a variety of ways to try and explain what everyone means is just like, hey, you read it and you get a basic, get it idea, understanding, yeah, idioms, expressions, things like this. So you're going to have to, we're going to have to coin a phrase. So here's the thing, both covenantal theologians and dispensational theologians agree there, okay? okay that they're going to say it, it's in a normal way of re reading, right? Okay. They're going to yep. see that idioms should be interpreted as idioms. Where we have the difference is, now if there's any Presbyterians out there that understand the regulative principle of worship, I, this is my way of explaining it. I have a regulative principle of interpretation, 
In other words, I don't say the Bible says more than it than it says. And that's this is where the difference is. In other words, this is the example I like to use, is the offering of Isaac a type of Christ? And I would say no, because scripture doesn't say so. Is Jonah a type of Christ? <laughs> yes, because scripture says so. Okay. But a covenant theologian would say, yes, it is, mm -hmm. because look at all the similarities. I can agree with the similarities. There's a ton of similarities in the offering of Isaac, mm -hmm. but I won't say it is. Now, if I get to heaven and God says, Andrew, you didn't go far enough. Okay, I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. What I don't want to hear is, Andrew, you went too far. <laughs> you, you, you started saying something I didn't say. I don't want to hear that. And so I will freely admit, I think dispensationalism is probably a safer hermeneutic be, because of, of that. Now, mm, can we say it's a perhaps more conservative hermeneutic? Yeah, we could say that. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you I just mean, seem like I, you're just I'm, like I'm, trying I'm, to be cautious, like with your words and yeah. be like, I don't want to assume or I don't want to where God has not spoken. I will not open my mouth. That's, that's exactly it. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't want to put words in God's mouth. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds um, a little unsafe. So, so <laughs> it's it's unsafe very <laughs> um but but see what we end up seeing is that in a covenant view you're going to have a little bit more uh figurative so you're going to see things that are figurative that that a dispensationalist would take literally example a thousand years mentioned in revelation 20 mentioned mm -hmm. six times <laughs> dispensationalist is going to take that literally and some some and i'm being careful because not all covenantalists would do this, but some covenantalists would take that figuratively. Most would. Uh, anyone that's amillennial is going to take that figuratively. Now, and now so, I, I would like, could you give me an example that's not that? Because, you know, you begin sure. with this idea that, you know, it's not about end times eschatology. So let's use a different example then. Yeah. If it, well, otherwise, I, I feel like you, it's- I gave you another with- Yeah. I gave you another with the offering of Isaac. Okay. Right. I, Isaac is, so it's taken figuratively to point to Christ and say, this is an example of Christ, a type of Christ. And I would say it isn't because scripture doesn't say it is. So I, I see that distinction there that we would have. Um, when we get to whether Israel is the church, that's going to be a major one that, I mean, that's so major that it's one of the defining things of dispensationalism, what we would call the sine qua non, that's a, uh, sorry, Latin for you know, with, without there is not so much, it, it, you can't have dispensationalism with these three things. The first being the normal hermeneutic that we're talking about now, the second being the view of the distinction between Israel and the church. And the third we'll get to um, is a doxological view of scripture instead of Christological. Well, let me, let me mention that one quickly, because that, that, let me give that and then, then yeah. dive into questions with, with all. So the doxological view is the fact that we would take the the purpose of scripture as being for God's glory, not specifically Christ. So I don't, I'm not looking for Christ in every passage. Okay. I'm looking for God's glory in every passage. So if I come to the Song of Solomon, mm -hmm. I'm not saying this is about Christ and the church. Okay. I'm saying this is about the love and beauty of a marriage. Now, a a, a, the love within marriage gives God glory. But if this is, if the purpose of the book was about Christ and the church, now we have some things, A, it wouldn't have had a meaning for a thousand years, or it had a meaning that we didn't see for a thousand years. The other thing is there's some graphic language in that book that I don't know that that's exactly <laughs> how we want to describe our relationship with our Lord. Okay. So when we look at that, I mean, if you look at it and one of my seminary professors did his dissertation on the Song of Solomon, like I could think of other things to do a dissertation on, but, but he lays out that it is a wedding, that the whole thing is, is about an, an ancient wedding. So I would see that as giving God glory. I struggle with what we do when we get to, you know, leprosy on houses, you know, that we see in Leviticus, I think it's 14. How, how does that point to Christ? And I've, I've heard, people, um, you know, try, you know, okay, granted, this is a really, really bad one, but if you remember Harold Camping, he used to be on family radio. Nope. He's, he was not. a really bad representation of covenant theology. Actually, he was, he's a really bad representation of a lot of things, but <laughs> I mean, he would have people, he'd have people call up his program and ask how to get saved. And he would just say, well, if you're one of the elect, God will will you know, bring you to repentance, and we'll go to our next caller. And it's like no gospel, you know. He 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 was the epitome of how not to interpret the Bible. But yeah, 
I, I called in his program to ask him that because I was curious since, you know, he thinks he, he makes, he tries to jump. He does these really crazy gymnastics to, to fit Christ into everything. And, and so he, he was going through, well, house means church and church. Christ is the head of the church. And, and like, this was the gymnastics that some would do. And he, I granted, I've said, he's the worst example of, of covenant theology. So, mm-hmm. but, but, that would be what some would do when they're trying to look for Christ in every single passage. And and they will get that from a view that says where you know Christ is talking with the disciples after his resurrection on a way of Emmaus. And he said, you know, every, the Old Testament points to him. It doesn't mean every single verse. Sure, sure, sure. I yeah. think that it just means the Old Testament. And so so we would see a distinction there. Does when it speaks about Christ, does that give God glory? Yes. So I have a broader view of as a dispensationalist to what the view of scripture is than a, uh, a a covenantalist would do. And so in some areas I'm more specific in other areas I'm more broad. So gotcha, actually, gotcha. so those are the three overviews. Okay. Notice so, I didn't mention anything Ben times, by the way. <laughs> I know, I know. You should have. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. So you've got doxological <laughs> versus Christological, right? And what's the second right. one and the third one again? So well it, it would actually start off with a normal or literal okay. or plain Plain reading of the text. Plain reading of the text versus a figurative meaning. Okay. Yep. A distinction between Israel and the church. Okay. Israel and the church are not the same thing. Okay. They're not this. There's not the same entity. We could dig into that more. And then a doxological versus Christological view. Those so, those are the three things. So I'm I'm curious then. Um, okay. So you would say that the focus of Scripture is to give God glory, right? Yes. That sounds very covenantal. <laughs> Um, now I'm just joking with you a little bit, but that is sort of well, true it, and stuff it, like, it right? Because, because here's an, here's an interesting thing. Okay. When people think of dispensationalism, mm-hmm. they think of the guys a hundred years ago with charts laying out end time views. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's what dispensationalism is known for outside of the camp for the charts and, and the premillennialism mm-hmm. yep. laying out all this timeline and i've i've never really looked at the charts i you know i mean i've seen them but don't use them right so it's a thing where when we look at what dispensationalism is we talk about well we'll talk about things like the continuity discontinuity of israel yeah. there's there's a range within covenant theology just like there is a range within dispensationalism you sure. have the hardliners i mean the extreme on dispensational side says there's a complete discontinuity. They, I would call us hyper-dispensationalism. They don't read the writings of, uh, of the Gospels. They don't read the Old Testament, just the writings of Paul. I yep. would say that's, that's pretty extreme. extreme. Yep. The other side on the extreme, on the covenant camp, sees that everything that was promised to Israel is the church. And so you'll have some that that try to keep the laws because there is Israel. And so you you get into to that. The the reality is there's a lot more we're a lot closer now. Where you get really close is what used to be I guess it used to be called new covenant theology which is out of the covenant theology camp where they see distinction between more distinction with Israel and the church, a more literal interpretation. Um there's some things you know that as that the, and that's that's actually a, a very newer when I say that's a new system uh, I know the guys that wrote the first book <laughs> on New Covenant theology, so they're alive today and very well. So it's it's within the last you know fifty years that that has been developed, and and I th- that's that's now got a new name because that kind of went off in a different way, I guess. But uh, that too you can compare to progressive dispensationalism, uh, and and so the the other view is called progressive covenantalism, the new New Covenant theology view. And I, I think that whoever came up with the terms really was wrong. Like we don't want to be progressive on either side, <laughs> right? But progressive new covenant, uh, progressive uh, covenantalism, and progressive dispensationalism are pretty close. They're they're very much uh, they they see a lot of similarities. It's just when it comes to the end times, future prophecy, there's there's differences there. So let's so they talk about they interpret that differently. Continuity, discontinuity. So if I ask you this question, do you think the Bible is one story? What is the response to that? Yes. Okay. Bible's one story. What is, what is discontinuity? What is, what, what part of this has discontinuity? Yeah. And and this is where I'm going to 
I'm going to joke with you because many people think that, well, covenant theology is more biblical because the Bible talks of covenants and we don't see dispensations in there. Well, we do. The word that we get dispensationalism is there once in Ephesians. But when we look at the covenants God makes with his people, when you, you know, this is back to what I said with the charts that people are doing. Mm -hmm. You have the charts of all these dispensations and there's some people that focus on, you know, is there five dispensations, seven dispensations? Okay. A dispensation is nothing more than an economy, a way that God works with his people. It's instructions that he gives to a group of people for a time. And those are defined by the covenants. So dispensationalism is heavier on covenants, maybe than covenant theology, because we would look at each of the covenants, right? So there was a covenant given to Adam, and he had some rules and responsibilities. There was a covenant that was given to Noah, Mm -hmm. and, and that had more things. But we end up seeing that then there's a covenant given to Moses, some dispute whether there was a covenant to David, then there's a new covenant. So what we end up seeing is that with each of the covenants comes a responsibility of with between God and his people. And so dispensationalism sees that each of those covenants is still part of a of one story, but each of those covenants has a different way that God relates to his to those specific people or universal. So you would say so though would... that that God actually interacts with different peoples, people groups, whoever it is, whichever covenantal group. So let's let's take a covenant between Abraham and I don't know, pick pick the next covenant, David well, let, or Moses or Adam let's or take, whatever. Let's take Abraham and Moses, or we could go with okay, Abraham you know, and Moses back to good. Adam and Moses. Sure. So so here be an example I would use. Okay. Let's take let's take the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And and this is one that gets disputed within dispensational circles as well as new covenant, covenant theology, theology too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is pretty disputed yeah. in lots of circles. Yeah, they would. Well, new covenant theology would say we we have the law of Jesus, so they only they only look at things that were commanded in the New Testament. Um, and so if we look at this on the seventh day of creation, there was a command to keep a Sabbath that I would say is universal for all human beings because it was given to Adam. Okay. And so, therefore, there is a Sabbath that every person is responsible to keep. Okay. Now, did Moses add to that? Yes. For the nation of Israel, he added a whole lot of new laws for the Sabbath that apply to the nation of Israel. But we're not the nation of Israel. Therefore, I would say we're under that universal law that was always in play. So I do I hold to a Sabbath? Yes. I believe we should have a day set aside for rest and for the worship of God. But does it mean that we can't do work and we can't lift sticks? No. I I don't I think that was for the nation of Israel. So this is how it ends up playing out. But why then that, why then are you separating Adam from the nation of Israel? Well, I wouldn't see Adam as part of the nation of Israel. Right, right, right. But especially but, since there there wasn't an Israel to be a nation at that point. <laughs> well, okay. So would you consider yourself a part of the nation of Israel? Well, you're probably asking the wrong person because I actually am uh, a Levite. So <laughs> right, right. So, but how so, do you yes. how do you fit I'm, this I'm, in for yourself, right? Yeah. So I am physically of the nation of Israel, but under the new covenant. Okay. And right. so, so now here here would be a thing with that, right? The nation of Israel is commanded. A, a law for Moses was to keep the Passover forever. Okay. Okay. So Israel has to keep that. That's not part of some ceremonial or you know civil law and and I disagree with that this, those distinctions by the way <laughs> uh but that's the way no I I I believe no, no don't worry I, I, I get it but yeah. there so so well because it may be new for some folks so there's a yeah in within reformed theology there's a tripart view of the law you have civil mm-hmm. ceremonial and moral yep. I I've asked for for years if someone could produce for me the 613 laws divided in that, that camp. I, I would love to see someone take that on and divide those that way mm-hmm. it, because sometimes things preach well, but they don't fit well in the scripture. And I, I've never seen it. It may exist. So, but if it does, I'd love to see it. But the issue being is I take it more as that there's universal laws. There's laws for the, for there's laws for the nation of Israel. There's laws for the church. Now I think there's more than that. I think there were laws for Moses and, and Abraham uh, and, and some of those don't, 
you know, wouldn't apply be, because those were covenants that were given to either specific in, and most often comes up with Moses because I think that was given to a nation. And so that we do have laws that were civil because they were for that nation on how to, how to do things. And, but it's not so clear argue, to me then, how are you distinguishing and see if you, if you're not, if you don't want to segregate it into these three categories, how are you distinguishing that which laws were given to a nation and that which are moral laws? Yeah. Well, I do it through the covenants. So what I'm distinguishing, and this is why I'm using the term universal mm -hmm. nation of Israel laws and New Testament laws. And so what I see in those is the fact that there are some laws that even, even Gentiles are expected to follow. For example, thou shall not lie, thou shall not kill. Okay. God will hold people accountable. And, and the, even the New Testament is clear. They're accountable even though they don't have the law, meaning the, the 613 commandments. Mm -hmm. there, there were more than just 10. <laughs> um, and the thing is, is you, you take, take, for example, we talk about the Sabbath. Yeah. So you have a Sabbath law. That Sabbath law is a moral law. Why? It's, it's why? Are, but that's what I'm saying. Like, you die it's, if you break it. It's not so you obvious to me why it. you're making a distinction about the Sabbath law, and you're making it. Why wasn't that just the covenant for Adam? Well, I th see. I think that I think that Adam. It was because it was rooted in creation. That covenant for Adam was there was that had a effect for all of humanity because we're all in Adam, and so the the covenant to Adam was was for for all mankind where what you see with that which was given to moses was for that the that nation now is not and the so, covenant of adam a covenant of death though after the sin after the fall yeah well so, but some was i mean some we see that part of the covenant that we see within creation is the sabbath day a I, day of a day of yeah, rest and sure. it is kind of interesting that that certain countries russia tried this russia tried doing a 10-day work week and found that people were not as productive as a, and they went back to a seven day because, I actually, well, I have heard better. of studies like that. Yeah. That, yeah. That people have like, they've tried other things to try and break the seven day thing and it hasn't worked out. <laughs> yeah. And it, I find it interesting that for evolutionists who argue that we evolved in all this, where do you get a seven day work week from? <clears throat> Every culture has a seven day work week. Mm -hmm. Why? <laughs> you know, because it's, it's part of the creation order. And so as being part of creation order, I think there are things that are universal for all. And so um, I think that there's there's laws that we would see within the covenants that are given to a wider range and some that are given to a specific range. So I would argue that those which are given to the nation of Israel were for the nation of Israel. So that's why I make that distinction. But, and, and if but, I could, but, but by what mechanism would you determine that? Hermeneutics. <laughs> right? It, no, but it, it's... It's it's looking at the covenants, um, looking at things. So there's going to be things. Let, let's take for example uh, one that's challenged a lot today: homosexuality. No, it's challenged I don't today. Think it should be challenged. It, yeah, yeah. It I, I know, be, I know. But I know. it. But what we have is we have people that are trying to say, "Oh, well, the new covenant is all about love," mm -hmm. and so what they want to do is redefine. The Old Testament. Now, what they're doing is putting such a distinction between Israel and the church that they're saying, well, those laws don't apply to us at all. That was just for the nation. However, what was that law rooted in? Creation. One man with one woman. And that is repeated multiple times through Scripture, both in Old and New Testament, that that is the reason why homosexuality is wrong. So it's rooted back to creation. That makes it universal. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, be opposed to looking at Old Testament passages for that or New Testament passages for that, because I see it rooted to the creation order. Would so you say I, then we, that, that the covenant that God makes with Adam, the creation covenant there, is unique and distinct from the other covenants? Uh, I, I would, I think I would, I might need to think about this more because I've never been asked that question, but I my initial thought is that I think every covenant is unique. But you're you're but, saying the creation covenant has like a, a unique almost a unique sense in which it 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 goes throughout, right? That it it well, impacts all of us and even all of the all of the other covenants. They're all have something that originates or I think there are things through that we see throughout that are not necessarily tied to a covenant. For example, why is 
lying wrong? Why is murder wrong? Why is rape wrong? Why is coveting wrong? Now notice I threw one in there that's not one of the 10 commandments, right? But yet it's still universally wrong. Why? Because God is not a liar. God is not a thief. God is not a rapist. God is not one who covets. In other words, the, the moral system that we know, we get that from the nature of God. That's the standard. And so anything that... And this is why I would end up saying that if people go, well, if you, if, if the, if Jesus didn't re repeat, thou shalt not lie, then it, you know, it's not for the, the church. Mm -hmm. And this is a question I challenge to those that would be involved in uh, New Covenant theology. The question is, okay, did God mention, did Jesus mention rape in the New Testament? Because if not, then I guess rape is okay. Right, right. If, right. if we, if we, I know. Right, we follow we the logic. That, that's follow just, the logic of, yeah. yeah well, that what she doesn't know, say I know, is I, perfectly I'm, permissible. I use logic. I know. I'm bad. Sorry. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If we take it to its logical conclusion, then we end up with the question of, is this is this teaching uh, that we can rape? And I would say, I would say, no, we can't. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that what makes it unique, what some of them are unique is that we have the case that um, this is a covenant given to a specific either group of people. Uh, I could pull it up, but you know, one thing I one of the things I did is I looked at all the covenants and kind of showed that there's this progression in the covenants um, that you see covenant given, you know, to a person, Adam, you know, eventually to a nation through Moses, mm -hmm. uh, through a kingdom through David, if you take that one, um, and then you end up having um, the um, you know, to the new covenant to, to, to everyone. So I think that you could see this progression over time. Progression. Like, I mean, like, like it changes, but what do you mean progression? It, like it's progressing in what sense? Like it, it's not really obvious to me. Like, I mean, I'm familiar with like, well, of course what you're talking about, but, but like, in what sense is it? Do you, do, you, do you mean that it's progressing as that it's moving forward or do you mean that it's progressing as that it's getting better? Oh, well, I definitely think it's getting better. Um, but I think it's also reaching a broader audience with each one of them. For example, I would say the covenant to Moses was for a specific nation, Israel, and now Gentiles are included in, in, in a newer covenant that ha reaches a wider audience. Okay. But I mean, I don't think this can hold up consistently throughout from the Old Testament to the New Testament, because isn't Adam the most broad audience you can have? If, if you're accounting Adam is to be the first of creation, then it's for the whole world, right? No, no, it's one person. Okay. But who He's is one that person? Now, the whole, I, would, I would argue the covenant for the whole world would be the, the millennial <laughs> you might disagree with that. <laughs> okay, but I mean, are you really saying that the covenant for Adam? Oh, it's just to Adam, but not to his family. Yeah, and and this is this is something. I mean, this is something that that I've kind of developed. I don't think. I mean, we 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 would. It comes out of a view of this progressive view of revelation. We get more revelation with more instruction. I see the covenant same way, but that's not a major part of dispensationalism. Okay. So, but. Let, let me, let me, if I could, let me do something that again, this is also is, I think, unique with me, okay. but maybe helpful. All right, now, let's you, go. Now, it doesn't mean that, that it's right or wrong, <laughs> but <laughs> when we look at, when we look at in Romans, this is the big area where we, where people see continuity between Israel and the church is Paul will say not all Israel is Israel. Sure. And so what is he doing? He's referring to a spiritual Israel. And so what people will say is, see, that means that the church is Israel. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, again, a history lesson. And if anyone gets a copy of my book, What Do We Believe? In there, it's a short systematic theology, um, easy to read. But I have a section on the church where I give a basically a historical view of the word ecclesia, where we get the idea of church, mm -hmm. because that word has become more and more specific throughout the years. It used to originally, it was just the idea of Ecclesia meant a gathering for the purpose of voting. That's the, in Ephesus is the first place we see that word. And it was for a vote. So every four years in America, we ecclesia. No, mm -hmm. that's, uh, we, you know, because that word has become more specific throughout history. And as we end up seeing that, we, we, see that it became for the purpose of worship. Uh, but then with the Catholic Church, you have the Reformers, you have the Puritans, 
start developing it more. And they started to see there's, you, you know, when everybody's forced to go to church, you have people in the local assembly that are not believers. Are they the church? Well, that was the struggle. And so what they did was they developed terminology that they used being the visible and invisible church, or sometimes it's referred to as the universal and local. So the invisible or universal church are believers everywhere in the world throughout all time. Mm -hmm. So those who are part of the church, universal, are believers. Now, I would say after the time of Christ, you would say to include those before. I, I, I recognize that. But just understand the terminology. And, and you know, the reformers or Puritans could go back and forth on it. But the it's the it's that invisible. It's all believers, only believers, even though they don't worship in the same local assembly. Mm hmm. But in that local visible assembly, you have believers and unbelievers. So when we say church, after the Puritans, it became, what are we speaking of? Are we speaking universal or are we speaking local? In mm -hmm. other words, is it the church that is just believers or is that local assembly that has unbelievers as well? That is very helpful for us when we look at what we mean by church. I take that same thinking and terminology and apply it to Israel, and I think this clarifies a lot of some of the issues. So there's a universal and local Israel, or a visible-invisible. So in the nation of Israel, you had believers, and all of the believers would make up a spiritual Israel or universal Israel, invisible Israel, whichever you want to use. And then you had a local assembly or visible assembly of Israel that was made up of believers and unbelievers. Now, why do I make that distinction? Because I think within the local visible Israel is mm -hmm. distinct from the local visible church, where when we look at the universal Israel and universal church, now we're going to have more continuity. Okay. And so when when I break it down this way, where I can I can look at some things that were true for spiritual Israel and say that's true for spiritual church. So if but I've... I wouldn't say for the look for the local or visible Israel and church. So so that's where I kind of break down some continuity, discontinuity. Okay. It, it just helps me in my thinking. Sure. So so if I rephrased it, perhaps would you accept this, right? Don't rephrase it and break my my, my narrative. <laughs> Every, look, we now know we live in a culture where truth doesn't matter. Theology doesn't matter. The narrative matters. Keep, keep my narrative. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to try really hard, but I don't know, man. It's tough. Well, if you break it, then I got to rethink it, right? Then it's wrong. <laughs> well, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm going to improve on your... No, I'm just... Um, so... Um, but no, if, if if I phrased it um, just for clarity's sake, for because I, I I'm pretty sure I yeah, I understand what you're saying, right? So it's yeah the idea of like oh well who's the real church and like yeah because I mean I think almost all of us all of us can admit um, that yeah when you go to church it's full of both, right? You don't just go to church and go like yeah I I know for sure everybody is the perfect state. Um, yeah, I, I always heard church. I always heard it. it's called heaven. I always heard one pastor say, it's like, look, if you find the perfect church, you should leave because <laughs> the, then you've got, you've got an issue because you're, you're the one that's going to be stuck out. There, there is, there is a perfect church. You just have to die to get there. <laughs> details, details. Yeah. Well, so, um, if I phrased it as, um, God's children, right? So you would say that all who are God's children and that there's continuity, right? Correct. Okay, yeah, okay. Not not everybody is a child of God, John 1, 12. Mm -hmm. You know, not all are children of God, but those who believe in Christ, I would say that Israel looked forward to the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So they had a they didn't have the knowledge we had. We looked back at Christ, they looked forward to him. Right. But right. the still the belief is incorrect what Christ did. Yeah. Okay. Now I want to shift gears on you for half a second or whatever. I want to know what you think about salvation and how does your hermeneutic interact with salvation from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Does that I, so, I would say it's the same. Okay. So you would say I, I, it, but but as what I just said, they looked forward to, they had a sacrificial system. Mm -hmm. that didn't re remove sin, but it looked forward to a sacrificial system or sacrifice that would. Now, this mm -hmm. is a complete yeah. side note, but on my Apologetics Live, I do a show, Apologetics Live, uh, ApologeticsLive.com is how you join and watch it. But we have a, a guy, a Jewish guy coming in, and he's trying to disprove Christianity. Okay. And he sent me a six-page proof that Christianity cannot be from God. And it's going to be really funny when he comes on because he doesn't realize he destroyed Judaism in the process because his whole argument is 
Christ claims to be a sacrifice. And the Old Testament says we don't need sacrifices. We need a contrite heart. We need repentance. Uh huh. Well, yeah. That that violates the whole law of of like Leviticus is all about the sacrificial system, and it's a must. You can't have a sacrifice without blood. So it's it's kind of funny because in his attempt to get to get rid of Christianity, he gets rid of Judaism, and he hasn't put that connection together yet. Well, that'll so be an interesting discussion to be, discussion to, be to be had. Yeah. <laughs> Have yes. fun with that. Yeah. That'll it, be interesting. It's very much like your show where we, we discuss openly different, different, you know, it's, it's apologetic. So we discuss anything and, and mm -hmm. it's, it's more, it's more fun, I guess, in this way with than you know, you invite a guest on. Mm -hmm. I have people come into Apologetics Live, and we—it's a podcast too. But they—they—they yeah. they, they come in prepared for a debate, and I don't know I'm having a debate that night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's—it's—it's yeah. it's, it's really kind of fun because it's like I never know what I'm going to be asked and what I'm going to be challenged with. Yeah, yeah. Keeps you on your toes. <laughs> okay, so now going. Um, yeah, let's let's go ahead and I want to get into just a little bit because we've only got a little bit of time left. I know you've got uh, other other things to do, but um, so. Now, this is one, now you said I would disagree with you, but um, uh, maybe, I probably would on some points, but I am curious. So because everyone does want to know, they want to know about the end times and this and that and all these sorts of notions. And so segregating the church from Israel. Now, I think it's important that we distinguish here. Um, are we talking about the nation of Israel? Is that's largely when you say Israel, that's what you're referring to. Is that right? So yeah, in in and this is where <clears throat> I don't focus a whole lot on end times, but okay. even though much of the Bible does, <laughs> the well, I don't know. It, it, well, you, when you look at a lot of the Old Testament, is dealing with future prophecies. It's just how we and yeah, how but, we interpret those. Well, I think a lot but, of those were yeah were fulfilled in Christ. Yeah, yeah, and and this is that, that becomes where some of the differences are. Um, I think that the the dispensational view that we would have is because there were certain land promises that were never fulfilled, um, literally, we would see that the, because we take this in this normal reading, mm -hmm. because that led to a s distinction between Israel and the church, we see these promises that were given to Israel that were very specific and physical mm -hmm. and should be fulfilled by by Israel. Now, I think Michael we, Brown will agree with you there. Well, well it might in, be in, one of the few areas Michael in, in, Brown and in I just, agree. Well, yeah, because uh, I know I know he's going to disagree with you on a lot of things, but one of the things is he really yeah. does see this, um, yes, land promises and things like that and, that are and, yet to be fulfilled from in Israel. Okay, and so you brought up Michael Brown. Let me just say, and I can't speak for him, I can speak for myself. People assume that I'm a dispensationalist because... I'm an Israelite. That's not true. Okay. Uh, what actually what got me to be a dispensationalist is the charismatic movement. <laughs> so, so the reason being, you is, do have an interesting when, background, that Andrew. <laughs> the, when I went to college, I okay. So, so being raised Jewish, I became a Christian at sixteen. Uh, my parents found out at eighteen. That's when they went casket shopping to bury an empty casket for me. Uh, but. Uh, what ended up happening was I got to college and I got involved with Word of Faith, charismatic group, because that's all that was at the college. And they taught me the Bible because I didn't know the Bible. I mm -hmm. I just trusted them. Four years later, I graduate. I'm sitting at a Bible study. Two men, I'm not even involved in the conversation. They're just at the other end of the table at a Bible study. And one guy turns to the other guy and says, well, we don't believe that all of those gifts continued to today. And I went, what? Like, I was taught this is how to interpret the Bible. I went home that night and I read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 in one sitting, mm -hmm. not assuming that the gifts continue, just saying, what does the text actually teach? Mm -hmm. And I realized that everything I was taught, everything that happens in the charismatic movement was condemned by Paul. Now, you may be charismatic. I don't know. But... <laughs> I'll just say um, more than you are. <laughs> At this point, so and actually, I, yeah. I we're, and, and, we're, we'll have to have a I'll have to have you back on, and we'll have we to can talk have about one on that. This. But but here's the, but I'll say it to this is what what that did was I I walked away saying I need to learn how to interpret the Bible. So for four years, I read everything I could get on biblical interpretation, how to interpret, and what I ended up coming to was the natural reading, the way we do any other language. I, I know there's there's some who will say that well the Bible is a different book, so you must read it with a spiritual hermeneutic or a Christological hermeneutic, lots of different terminology for it. Mm -hmm. But I think God gave us language and we use the 
the rules for language. And and you know, maybe we could get into a further discussion of those different rules, but there's rules for historical narrative that differ from Hebrew poetry, that differ from you know, prophetic literature. They each have a set of rules. So you need to identify the type of language. You need to t- identify the rules for that language. And those rules we would have for literature as well, right? So you can have a a Shakespeare or a, a John Bunyan, for example. John Bunyan writes where it is very clear that he has dual meanings for things. Mm-hmm. His main character is Christian. That represents a Christian. Yep. And worldly wise man represents a worldly wise man, right? Ignorance represents ignorance. So each, so there's clearly, by the nature of the book, it is clearly meant to be taken figuratively with some areas, right? And so you're following the rules for that when interpreting that book. Mm-hmm. I apply the same to the Bible. And that's really what it comes down to. I know, I know. Unfortunately, it's still difficult because... Everyone still disagrees. It's not like, you know, many of us read hermeneutics books and we read a variety of different uh, books and then we still can't agree on things. Well, look, look, I put it this way. If everybody could interpret the Bible consistently and accurately all the time, they would agree with me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was like a joke. So, so I want to kind of end a no. little bit on 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 that on on the notion because I've I've really just been thinking a lot about uh, biblical studies and I've been thinking a bunch about um, today. I hear a lot about Christian scholarship and PhDs and all these sorts of things, and it's really led me and including church history, like you know, because you were talking about like oh church history and church fathers, and I think it's important to have all those things. But I think that it goes back to me that the Bible is ultimately the source of authority. And I think there are some situations in which I'm conflicting or clashing with academics or even church history in one area or another. And I just want to go, unless you can convince me through sound reason or the scriptures themselves, you know, show me, show me the Bible verse, right? Like show me the chapter and verse and you can win me over. Right. Um, so I am curious, what, what do you, cause to me, honestly, that's what I hear you saying to some degree, right? Is you're like, Hey, look, I feel like I read the Bible and this is what it says. Well, essentially that is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm following. <laughs> yeah, well, so, yeah. so, I mean, so the issue that, that I kind of see is when what, and, and this is going to be a generalization and not true for many covenant theologians. When when but when you have those that are saying, well, you have to read the Bible in light of the covenants or this covenantal statement, this you know confessional statement. The issue is when you start putting creeds in and church history in and saying we have to reinterpret the Bible through the. In other words, we don't read it in its plain meaning. We have to read it in light of of this now. Are there times we see that? Let me give a, a good example. In uh, Haggai, it speaks of Israel, clearly Israel, saying, out of Egypt, I call my son. Mm-hmm. And then in Matthew, he seems to be quoting that very verse, but clearly assigning that to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So what people will do is say, well, see, there's a dual meaning here. Therefore, we should interpret the Bible with dual meanings. We should be looking for the spiritual meaning of things. Well, this again, relative principle of interpretation. If the Bible, if God does that, then I say, if that's now notice, he never mentions the prophet that said it. So mm-hmm. there were prophets that were that didn't write in scripture. He didn't say as scripture said. And so is that something that was known at the time by a different prophet? It could be. That's one explanation. But if it's not, if it is a dual meaning, I would say, well, when God says it's a dual meaning, because God's word cannot be an error, when we see him give it a dual meaning, then we can say that has a dual meaning. But I don't look for other things to have a dual meaning. I don't look for a figurative way of interpreting other things. And so I I think what you end up seeing is, I think some, and, and I'm going to say this, and please, my oh, no. covenant theologian brothers, please hear me with, with some <laughs> grace, because I know this is going to, I know it's going to ruffle feathers. But this was the view of the separatists, those that didn't want nothing to do with the Catholic Church, 
that started to reevaluate these things. I think that just like the reformers saw that there was some baggage that the Roman Catholic Church brought into into the the Bible and into Christendom and they reformed it, I I just say they didn't go far enough and I think there's still some of that baggage that Luther and others just weren't willing to get rid of because it's what they knew. And it, it's hard to do the break completely and say, let's step all the way back. Look, one of the things with hermeneutics, the first principle I teach people when I teach hermeneutics is you need to question your presuppositions. <laughs> you you have to be able to say, I could be wrong about what I think this passage means. And you have to look at what the text actually says. And I think that that's a very difficult thing for all of us to do. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that we still have some of the history and the 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 creeds and the confessional statements that people have in their mind when they come to scripture and they say, well, this must mean this because this is what history says, scholars say, you know, I take positions that scholars don't necessarily agree with. Um, I, no, I take a position. You wouldn't be a contrarian says, at all, would you, Andrew? I, I, I would, I'd love to say I'm a biblicist, but that is a meaningless term nowadays. So <laughs> um, yep. I, I want to be a man of the word. Yep. You know, you know, you know what? I, I really feel like it's it's a noble thing, and I'll I'll just say it this way, right? We pursue what we we're, we're pursuing the Bible, you know, to understand it as best as best we can. So yeah, yeah. You know, I I I love it the way a friend of mine, Matt Slick, puts it. He and and he and I have debated each other more than we've debated anybody else. <laughs> um, We've debated charismatic gifts. We've debated <clears throat> baptism, infant baptism. He's Presbyterian. I'm Baptist. We've de- he's covenantal, covenantal theologian. Which I'm one of you is on the side of gifts? Uh, he, he, he believes gifts continue. I believe they see really. It. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, I I knew yeah. what you believed, and I was I I will be honest. I'm shocked to hear that Matt um, accepts gifts. I don't know. He just seems yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, you'd. <laughs> You'll have to go check out the debates. Go to go to Striving Fraternity's YouTube channel. You'll see the debate, the, the one of the many debates we've done on it. But, wow. um, but when we were de- debating covenant theology versus dispensationalism, one of the the women in the audience asked the question. She said, "You know, I noticed that Andrew, you are defending covenant theology against strawman arguments made by dispensationalism." And Matt, you're defending dispensationalism against strawman arguments made against covenant theologians. Mm-hmm. And now Matt gave a better answer. My answer, which came afterwards, was it's just I, like the argument comes back, like me defending covenantalism will weigh more with a dispensationalist being a dispensationalist. And so I, I want people to make good arguments and fair arguments. And so does Matt. So we that's why. But Matt had a great argument. So and I've, I've repeated many times because it was it was really was good. Matt's, Matt just said, look, Andrew and I both know we're wrong in our theology. We don't know where because if we did, we would change. Mm-hmm. But we know when we sit at the feet of Christ, he will correct both of us and we will be happy for that correction. And I think that's the big thing is that where we get into trouble is when we get prideful about our theology mm-hmm. and we think we can't be wrong because every one of us is wrong somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm wrong. I don't know where. Mm-hmm. Christ will correct me. I can put it this way. In a hundred years, you and I will agree 100% in our theology. We don't today. We One of us is wrong. Mm-hmm. Both of us could be wrong. But I know in some areas, we're all wrong. Yep. And that should ground us in humility to not be fighting over these things, but to learn from one another. I mean, look, I, I was joking with you. Uh, on my Rap Report podcast, uh, I'm going to be discussing this book, Covenant Theology, with Patrick Abendroth, right? Mm-hmm. That's, I'm reading a book on covenant theology to engage with him. Now, my Rap Report podcast, if you listen to Andrew Rappert's Rap Report, that podcast, I'm going to be letting him speak about the book. I'm going to invite him on to Apologetics Live where we'll more debate the book. Mm-hmm. Because you know, now people say, well, how could you have you, you have a podcast and you you bring people on that don't agree with you and you let them speak? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, my yeah. audience would know what I believe. And I one of the things I want to do is be fair with an audience, even on Apologetics Live. People get frustrated because I had a, like a black Hebrew Israelite comes in and I gave him an hour and a half, an hour, 40 minutes before mm-hmm. I'm like finally like, OK, what are you trying to say? <laughs> but I give I mean, I tried to let him I gave him a long time to try to build his argument. But after an hour and a half, we still didn't understand the argument. But I tried to do that. I want to give people the freedom to to voice their opinion. Even if I disagree with it, I, I'll interject questions to better understand it, because guess what? Patrick Abendroth might be right on covenant theology. I might be wrong. I don't mm-hmm. think I am. He hasn't convinced me yet. I haven't convinced you of dispensationalism maybe yet, but <laughs> 
the the idea here is that we we're not trying to convince one another. This is the big thing. If if I had anything to say to your audience, to my audience, is this: we should be less concerned with trying to convince each other that we're right, and see what we could learn from each other when it comes to our theology. Learn why someone believes what they believe. Are they consistent within their own system? You and I had a discussion before this, totally separate. It led to this, but yeah. what was some of the things? I you laid out your view, which is how we got into the, discussing this, and you said, "Hey, you, you got to come on my show." You laid out a view and it was something where, you know, I'm, I'm asking you questions and I'm saying, and I think I even said to you, I saw consistency. I disagreed with it, but I saw a consistency in your argument and I appreciated that. And that's what I look to do. I, I, where I poke, people think I'm trying to just kind of, I don't know, be argumentative or something. It's like, yeah, yeah, I yeah. poke holes where I see inconsistencies. Yeah. You could disagree with me, but if you're being consistent with it, mm -hmm. Then you have a better argument. What I'm trying to do is get people to have better arguments, mm -hmm. not necessarily my arguments. And that's where I appreciated with you, Adam, was the fact that when we had a discussion over the phone, it was one where there was a view to that you had of that you want to be consistent. You want to see where the truth leads you. We have a different way of approaching it, but you want to be consistent with it. And that I end up valuing. And that's where, you know, as, as you'll poke holes with what I believe, I'm poke, try to poke holes with what you believe. But what that does is get us to either refine our views or correct our views or totally, you know, denounce our views. Yeah, yeah, right? yep, yep. Because we want the truth. That's it. That's it, man. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. If you want to learn more about Andrew and his ministry, um, I'll be sure to have his links uh, in the description below. And um, thanks for so much for coming, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me.